Hello, this is Louise and welcome to Successful Student Transitions, a podcast hosted by me and Elizabeth Gillies. Our aim is to support you as you step out, find your new gear and thrive in the next stage of your life. And you're listening to series four, Lean Into Student Life. This series is for you if you're a first year university student who's just arrived. But before we get into today's episode, please help me in celebrating this, the 50th episode of this podcast. Wow, that feels quite an achievement. We've really loved recording the content and hope that it has supported you in some way over the past year. Thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate you. And another milestone, this episode is the last in the episode series for first year students. Thank you for listening so far and please continue to listen with great content planned for the next few months. We've also launched the Successful Student Transitions Instagram account, so please find us and follow us and leave a comment or two. We love to hear from you. So, enough chatter. Now on with the final episode in this Lean to Student Life series. Establishing an approach to the academics of university life we know can be challenging. And these five tips are designed to help you settle into the academics of your course and lay the foundations for a positive approach and mindset for learning and studying. Enjoy the episode. So hello and welcome to the final episode of this series. I can't believe that is eight episodes, eight weeks, <laughs> but here we are. And as you settle into this first term, we obviously hope that things are going well for you. But you may also be finding that this is the time when some of the academic challenges begin to arise. And so we wanted to focus this last episode all on sort of academic challenges and emergencies. And um, as you probably realise, these are a part of student life. We've all had to burn the midline oil, beg for extensions or face a disappointing mark. You know, that is really all part and parcel of learning. But that said, we also understand that it can feel overwhelming when you're adjusting to a new academic setup, style of teaching and learning at university. And so at this point in your academic experience, you may be facing some of the following challenges. The first one, academic disappointment. Perhaps you've always been a straight A or A star student and suddenly you realise you're not the only one. There are lots of people around you who are really good too. And so that kind of raises the challenge a little bit for you academically. And, and Louise, as well, there might be that kind of fear of failure. There might be that part of you that's a bit of a perfectionist. You might feel that you're never good enough. You worry about things getting wrong and you worry about failing, which is quite a common experience. Yes. Yeah. And I think especially if you've been in the in normal UK or American education system where the answer is you know, to get things right. <laughs> it can sometimes go wrong not to, to get things right. And I guess, you know, in a new academic environment, you're struggling to work out what the new standards are. You know, what do you need to do to get a certain grade? And perhaps as you're thinking about this, you then overread, you overdo everything just to be sure. But that then puts an awful lot of pressure on you. 
Yeah, and that sort of going down rabbit holes, like sometimes we talk about, is can lead to, you know, and not understanding fully maybe some of the criteria of assessments and things. You, it can lead to a high level of academic anxiety. It's leading you to want to try and ignore it and not do it, or you know that procrastination that we sometimes talk about and not getting down the work, down to the work that you need to do. So that anxiety can get in the way as well. Yeah, yeah. And I guess because this is set within the context of getting to know new people, new social situation, you might actually not be getting down to any studying at all. Uh, You're too busy, perhaps, out socialising by night and sleeping by day. Yet we know that's how it can be. I remember having times like that when I was at uni. It's great fun, but kind of, you know, deep down, it can't continue And we're also aware that in some universities that face-to-face in-person education, some of it is not still not happening. Um, So you're maybe on Zoom or on your computer a bit, um, and that also might lead to you having lots of free time and time to self-study, if that's what it's being labelled as, which might lead lead up to no study and having having a, a better or a different time doing other things. Yeah, yeah. And that makes me think that, you know, at uni versus kind of the school college scenario, perhaps more relaxed at college. But you know, there there was a lot more face to face. In uni perhaps not so much face to face. So it's more difficult to feel you belong and to feel that you are part of an academic community. It takes longer for that to form, I think. And bigger classes as well, that's the issue. So mm-hmm. They're much bigger classes and the person that you might meet one time you're going to lecture, you might not meet them again. Mm-hmm. True. And you're also likely facing some organisation challenges, which is really a function of your new life and trying to fit all these things that we've talked about. Remember, we were talking about the fundamentals in a, in a previous series. So you're trying to kind of create all those routines and do your shopping and do your exercise and get some rest. So you're doing a lot and it won't be surprising that setting up kind of good work habits could be difficult. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps you're feeling a bit bored. Perhaps you're finding that the course isn't quite what you thought it was advertised to be. And certainly in the first term, there's often a lot of repetition of A-level IB content because the universities are conscious that students come often from all over the world. There are some international students and people have different backgrounds and they have to bring everyone up to the same level of knowledge. You may also find that some of your lecturers are not as engaging as you thought they might be. And that's all part and parcel. They'll be good and bad. That's just the same as at school. But it can be a bit of a shock to you in these early days. And this is something else we've talked about before, about having a little bit of a dip where you might start to think about, oh, have I made the wrong decision? Wondering if you should leave, you should quit or change courses. We're not going to discuss this here because we have, we'd like to refer you back to episode 47, where we discuss what to do in this quite a normal situation that happens. Yeah, so great. So a mix of challenges there. And as we said at the beginning, 
And they are all pretty normal for this stage in the experience. So today we're going to share five tips to help you get your head around things and hopefully happily get your head into your books, at least for some of the time. So tip one, Elizabeth, what's that? So tip one today is challenge and stretch are normal and to be expected. Embrace it and become anti-fragile. So on one hand, we live in a world facing major challenges. On the other, we live highly comfortable lives. Comfort is the norm, and yet we seek to stay within our comfort zones. After all, they make life difficult for ourselves, and yet challenge is where growth comes from. The reality is change or disruption and the associated challenges will become the norm and we need to get better at living in an ever-changing and complex world. So we need not only to be resilient, but also develop what Nason Taleb calls anti-fragility, the ability to thrive and grow, not just survive or cope, through times of disruption and change. And we have to know that we have the potential capability, both psychologically and physically. We just need to learn and trust that we can grow through challenge and challenging experiences. You know, and you are living in a new environment now and coping with a different approach to learning. It will certainly feel uncomfortable at times and there will be some struggle. There'll be disappointment and panics, but these are valuable lessons that you can learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like um, some work by a guy called Eric Karpinski, who's author of Put Happiness to Work. And he says that it's really helpful to think about stress as a continuum. So if you draw a line and you have a continuum, one end you've got threat and the other you have challenge. And so he says it's absolutely true and pretty normal that a challenging or stressful situation can create a threat response. And at those times, you might feel you don't have the resources to meet the challenge you're facing. And when that happens, you can experience a threat response. Your blood is shunted away from the reasoning and complex thinking part of the brain as you cope with that threat. And this inhibits your ability to think clearly and believe that you can solve problems. And as a result, you might find yourself procrastinating, distracting, running away from actually getting down to what you know deep down you need to do. And if you feel this happening, it can help to approach the situation differently. And he suggests using what he calls a challenge response, which is the other end of the stress continuum. And with a challenge response, yeah, the difficulty is still there, But rather than seeing the situation as one to be fearful of, it helps to see it as a challenge from which to learn. So the idea is to try your best and see that your efforts can and will make a difference. So the important thing about this kind of response is that it activates a different set of body processes, providing more oxygen and energy to the brain so we can process information, see the big picture and act as we need to do in that situation. So really what you're doing is understanding that stress isn't inherently bad. It can help people shift from a threat to challenge response um, in order to see that that threat is not inherently bad. Louise, when you're kind of saying that, I kind of think of those visual illusions sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, but yes. how you 
perceive it as differently. So it's a good thing. The, the thing is still the same. The visual illusion is still the same, but we can interpret it. You know, there's that one, we might put it on the Instagram account. There's that one of the duck and the rabbit. And depending on how you view it, you see something different. So you might help yourself kind of make this shift from a threat to a challenge. How 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 do you become flexible within that? So you could ask yourself, when I have to start something new or different or challenging before, what did I do? What knowledge, skills and strengths did I use? And what could I use now? Because for certain you've been through this before. And when we see it's a challenge, you're going to be thinking your head more about it. You're going to be able to access those kind of bits of your brain that are going to problem solve. What's the one thing I could do to get started now? Simple questions to ask yourself. So tip, what's tip two, Louise, today? So tip two, so as you find some challenge perhaps that you feel uncomfortable about, I think it's really important to ask for help. But then also the other side of learning is to embrace what's termed in the research fields around this academic humility. So how good are you at asking for help? You know, I know I'm pretty terrible at it. I struggle on alone, feeling the pressure and become really surprised when others offer to help. And I know this is really something I need to work on. And I know I'm not alone, though. Research has shown that we, and I mean the general human population, not just students, don't ask for help enough. We tend to assume that people will see us as lesser than if we are forced to ask for help. But research has shown the opposite is true. And moreover, in relation to academic work, intellectual humility is an asset. There's some work by Professor Tenel Porter, who's in the US, And it says that intellectual humility is about acknowledging your limitations and recognizing that you don't know everything, you're not infallible, and other people know things that you don't. And that's quite true, isn't it? We can all rationally think and see that. So then we have to wonder why we we don't actually do it. You know, we're often reluctant to let on to people that we don't know things in case we think they think we're silly. And our education system is set up to compete. We're asked to be right all the time for the exam and be the best we can with our right answers. So it's not, you know, it's totally understandable that we feel we can't admit to being wrong often. But the irony is that in an academic setting, such as university, we're there to learn. And learning means admitting sometimes that we are wrong or that we don't know things. We can't be open to learning without intellectual humility. And there's some research by a guy called Adam Fetterman, who shows that people think it's a bad idea to admit that they're wrong, even when it is very clear they are. But in study after study, people tend to like people who admit they're wrong more than if they don't admit it. They judge them as more competent than those who hide it or deny that they've made mistakes. So all the research is telling us that A, we need to ask for help and B, yeah, have some academic humility. And when you get to the very top of kind of that academic life, when you're doing your PhD, it's about having a question to explore because you don't know the answer. Isn't it? And finding yes, yes, that totally. yes. it's unique yes. and nobody's explored before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So when we're thinking about asking for help and admitting when you're stuck or you don't know, it helps you both socially and academically. So Louise and I put together some ideas about what might help with this. So, for instance, you could reach out to tutors with specific questions and and requests. And in our previous podcast about asking for help, that was one of the things we we did talk about, wasn't it? Um, You might set up a study group where you all share where you're struggling and help each other out. It might be the one lecture and seminar to admit to that you don't understand something. There might be one of them. And watch when you when you ask, watch everybody else engage in the answer. They'll probably thank you that you know you were brave enough to ask, and they'll be very pleased you did. And embrace what we call a growth mindset, believing that you can grow and develop through effort, persistence, and commitment. Maybe not knowing that failing something's going to help you. And and lastly, it's recognised that at university, marks of 15, 60% can be seen as a good grade. If you look up a lot of university websites, it will tell you that in that first year, you know, if you're doing getting scores of 15, 15, 60%, they're saying that you're you're understanding the, the basic stuff and you're doing what they would expect. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to kind of improve on that maybe and, and you know, and, and boost your grades. But it's a, a common thing that you'll find. I, I was looking up in Imperial College University and that's what they were saying. 50% is a good grade in, in first year. So tip three, tip three is going to banish procrastination, perfectionism and a fear of failure and you likely know we've talked about procrastination before, and it's kind of one of my favourite subjects. Isn't that interesting? But it's really kind of peak for you as young people, young adults at this age, and not surprising given the level of change, this period of transition, getting used to independent living um, and learning, you're adjusting to all of this. There's a lot going on, um, a lot more time that you've got organised that you've not had before. And sometimes also people at your age are just less skilled at regulating themselves. So there's lots of things to say that, yeah, procrastination is quite a common thing for you. And when we talked about it before, we talked about it's full of Ds when you were faced with a task. So first of all, there's a discomfort. Um There's discomfort in thoughts and feelings. So the thoughts might be about, oh, how do I start? This is going to take me forever. I don't know how to do it. What if I fail? Or this is really boring. And the feelings you might have, you might have some of those physical sensations that you read as discomfort too. That might be butterflies in your stomach. You might feel a bit your heart racing or, you know, you might be feeling those emotions of anxiety and feeling frustrated. So, That discomfort at the beginning of the test is the first bit into procrastination. What comes next with it, Louise? Then you might start to feel a bit of distaste at the discomfort. You're wondering, can you tolerate it? And when does it get too much that you then dodge the task, the activity, run away from it? Yeah, because that's the way you get away from 
kind of questions of thoughts and feelings that of of yourself that aren't that are unpleasant. So you dodge it, which is the third D. Um, and you have to think about what your procrastination favorites, what are you drawn to that temporarily relieves you from that discomfort and you're not you're distaste of it. So is it kind of scrolling your phone, calling a friend, cleaning even, you know, when we don't really want to, but it's kind of something that might temporarily give us that relief. Do you know your procrastination favourites? So that when you start to do this stuff, you know, up oh, there it's coming. And then the final D, the dissatisfaction arrives. You know, when you can't dodge forever and you have to do the task or activity. You know, how does that dissatisfaction show up for you? You notice those thoughts and feelings. Are you making negative judgments about yourself? Are you saying, gosh, I'm so useless. Why can't I just get on with it? And oh, there I missed another deadline. Are you feeling angry? Angry, do you start to direct your anger at someone else or something else, the institution, the university perhaps, the lecturer? Or do you feel guilt about the fact that deep down, I know I should have done it, but I haven't. So this is a cycle that's a well-worn path in chronic procrastinators. So we've we've talked about some of these before. So here's, here's some good tips and think about the one thing that might help you to try and kind of break this cycle. So thinking about the D's above is quite a good thing to do and understand how this cycle works out for you is a good thing to know. And remember that that fight flight response, that threat response that we've talked about, you know, can often be there with those physical feelings. So you can use some deep breathing to calm down, And then there's a challenge response questions to get you going and take action and then the next action and then what happens next. Yeah. And I think often it's a question of just getting started. So you could set a timer for 10, 15 minutes and just do something. And very probably once you start to get into it, you realise that it's not quite so bad. You know, I have kind of blown this up in my mind to be something much worse than it is. And you may just get into the task a bit and want to continue that would be surprising (laughs) and good for you too um and and doing that you know to help you approach that chunk the task down to smaller achievable steps so perhaps that might be what you do in that first 10-15 minutes take the big task and just chunk it down to smaller smaller steps when there are times for you that this procrastination comes and you might know it's always with these kinds of work things that I have to do, plan for a what we call a when-then intention. So when I feel the urge to avoid a task, then I will go and sit at my desk and breathe deeply, or then I will take that first step of opening the book or something, something that will get you to act into a feeling. Um, And the other thing that um, is a favourite thing of mine around, around procrastination is to be compassionate to yourself because we know in that cycle and the dissatisfaction bit, we start to be critical about ourselves. So interesting study when students were that were procrastinators, one group were taught to be compassionate with yourselves, another group weren't taught anything, just talk to. The group that were compassionate were able to 
interrupt those cycles more. They were able to bring compassion to themselves rather than being, being critical. And that was one of the things that broke the cycle for them. Fantastic. And I think also you can think about your previous studying experiences because I'm sure procrastination was a feature sometimes then and ask yourself well, what helped you to start then and to then continue. Also think about your strengths and how they've helped you in the past and can help you now. And the important thing about using your strengths is that strengths are things that you're good at, so that will help with the task, but also they energise because you're doing something that you feel fairly confident about doing. You're using your 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 things that you're good at. So um, that helps to energise you to doing the task and feeling more positive about the task as well. And the other thing is plan to eat the big frog first thing. We talked about that in an earlier podcast too. So um, think about what's the most important thing to do for each day. Do that first. And as you're doing it, imagine how you'll feel when that task is done, when you can put a great tick on it and say, task done. Always feels really good, I think. <laughs> and, and when you've done it, celebrate it. Celebrate it in some way. Because celebration, you know, we're, we remember we talked about PERMA, it's those positive emotions. So celebration reinforces this new habit of, of getting something done and being pleased about it. It might also be good to remind yourself about why this degree is important, why this, this bit of work is important. It's all going to account towards that end goal. So it's about making and meaning, isn't it? Mattering and meaning. So... What does this task mean to you? Why is it important that you get it done? Yeah, absolutely. And also remember to ask for help if you're feeling stuck. <laughs> Back to point two or tip two. You can always email your tutor and say, I'm a bit stuck. Can you give me some guidance, please? That's what they're supposed to be there for. So um, don't be shy in doing that. Or you could find another student and say, look, I'm struggling a bit with this. Can you help me? Or perhaps we can do this task together. And then also remember to look after your mind. And that means by taking care of yourself, you know, looking after those fundamentals, making sure you're eating well, you're sleeping, and you're connecting with others to help boost your energy levels. So then I wanted to move on and talk a bit about perfectionism. Now, this is a feature that's on the increase in apparently in the UK, the USA and Canada, according to Adam Grant, who's author of a new book called hidden potential and he says the features of perfectionism are and the reason why we need to not be too much of a perfectionist is that we lose the ability to see the forest from the trees i.e the bigger picture we, we focus on the small detail and getting that right and then as we're doing that we tend to ruminate um, self-shaming can be quite a feature you know we're not self-compassionate especially about learning from our mistakes. We tend to be, beat ourselves up. You know, we shouldn't make mistakes. We've got to get it all right. As we've already talked about, that's not always a good thing to think. We tend not to stretch ourselves. You know, we stay with what we know rather than move into new and uncertain territory. And avoid failure and risk-taking. Let's not challenge ourselves because if we challenge ourselves, then we might not be able to be perfect in the solution. And that impacts on learning and we end up static and in an ever narrowing comfort zone and no expanding expertise. So there are lots of negative you know, sort of outcomes of perfectionism. 
So how can we reduce perfectionist tendencies? Well, Elizabeth, what are your suggestions for this? You know, I think it is goes back to what we talked about, but, but about the importance of making mistakes and being open to learning, knowing you're not going to get it all right first time. It's a bit like what we've been talking about. This is a transition. There's likely going to be difficulties and challenges because you've never done it before. And learning's the same, you know, there will be mistakes in learning because that's that's what happens when we have new experiences. Mm. And when we think about the personal characteristics that help you complete work, maybe it's good to focus on what are the things that help you do well enough. These characteristics are so important to everything kind of you do in the future. And if we think about just even going back a number of years about there was, a, there was an idea that was around, certainly when I was learning to be a parent, about the good enough parent. You know, sometimes things just have to be good enough. They don't have to be perfect. And I think that's a, a nice thing. It's it's good enough. And having that flexibility to know that sometimes, yes, you have to get everything absolutely right. And other times it has to be good enough. Mm. And maybe we've got to recognise um, that any kind of positive outcome takes time to evolve. There are very few overnight successes. And it reminds me of a little bit of research that was done in schools when people were taught about science and you you, you got all the scientists or kind of had discovered these amazing things and you had one group of children who were just told the, that this was this is what the outcome was, and then you had another group that you know understood about the years of toil and slaving over petri dishes, whatever it was, and there were really clear outcomes between those two groups. Is that one tried a lot more? They were more open to seeing that you didn't just need to have an overnight success. So. It's that practice that's about keeping going, keeping trying, um, keeping those baby steps going because it will get you there. Yeah, absolutely. Baby steps all the way. <laughs> so tip four, um, you need to adjust to the new learning environment. And I think it's really helpful to think about kind of a template for yourself as a successful learner. You know, what will be the characteristics on that template of what you need to be in order to be a successful learner. You know, the first thing to say is you're learning independently with far less guidance and a whole load more self-direction than you probably have done in the past. You need to make the choices and decisions about how deeply you research things, for example, when you stop that research, you know, how many articles are you going to read and how you then use that information in the research that you're completing. And you're going to have to manage your own deadlines. You're going to have to develop the good working habits and use your time productively. You know, the teaching that you receive in your lectures and your seminars and your tutorials will provide the background into your work, but then you will need to do the further, further research yourself. And the great thing is you have the freedom to follow what interests you. It may not always con contribute directly to perhaps a piece of assessed work, but you really can develop your own interests on your, in your own subject. And that will contribute to the more independent work and study that you do later on. So developing those independent study skills, curiosity, following your curiosity 
and seeing where it leads is really, really a great asset for the future, you know, future years at uni. And, you know, it might be that you've already got some inquiry skills about asking yourself questions about your subject matter. Um, and it's often those questions we ask ourselves that develop our knowledge and understanding. And that might need to kind of happen at a, a bigger and a deeper level when you're at university now. You know, we're asking you to ask questions of other people, but ask questions of yourself um, and what you're learning. That's going to be a very useful thing to do. And work is often iterative, which that means much research has a trial and error approach. Let's test this hypothesis and see how it stacks up. And Louise and I actually went to a conference last Friday and a researcher was talking about his PhD research. And the results of the research, seven years of it, were really interesting and were di direct opposites of his hypothesis. He could have decided he'd failed, but instead he chose to extend the learning that these findings pr provided. So to be open to ex exploration and discovery, success and failure or disappointment. So there's more questions to be asked, which is one of the things that he found out about. So there was no failure in it. It was more finding out more about something. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And 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 he ha was able to be incredibly enthusiastic about the results in the end, although he did have a massive dip, he talked about too, when he found that things weren't working out quite as he hoped, as he had expected, as he was and hoped. Um, I think the other thing to remember about academic work in universities is, you know, for example, you know, a lot of your lecturers and your research, the research people you're in touch with will be researching and then writing for ac ac academic journals. You know, they don't just write one draft and send it off and have it accepted. It gets rewritten and rewritten. People comment on it. It's usually a collaborative effort and they have to accept quite damaging feedback quite often. And I think that's kind of the mentality we, I would encourage you to accept as, as your way of going through. You know, when you're writing your assessments, create your own very first rough draft, one that you wouldn't share with anybody. Leave it for a few days, come back to it, redraft it, then perhaps get a friend involved, a colleague involved, a tutor involved to comment on it, then redraft it and so on. You know, that is allowed at university. You can do that. It doesn't have to be right first time round. And another thing, you're going to be asked to work in teams. And um, this is one that I sort of highlight just because I know it's been a real challenge for my daughter, because people tend not to take this seriously. And there is a really serious intent behind it with universities because they're realising that as people move out of university or even stay in the university to work academically for the future, you're going to be working in teams, you're going to be collaborating. And so it's really important to build those valuable team you know, collaborative skills. And that's why they set these, you know, exercises for you to do. Um, so really, they take some fo focus on those and, and contribute to those fully. And also remember that while you're expected to work independently, academic staff are there to help. So ask. Recognise, though, that they're not going to chase you. If you don't attend lectures, seminars, then nothing will probably be said. You know, it's up to you now to um, turn up and do what you have committed to do by signing up for this degree. 
So in thinking about establishing routines, then that's tip five. <laughs> um, yeah, it's term one. There's a lot going on. It's fun to socialise. In that context, perhaps work is not so fun or harder to get around to. However, you're at university to study. And the sooner you kind of develop um, a routine around your course and study, the better. And why? Well, likely you know that answer before I say it, because that routine will help you reduce the number of decisions you need to make. So if it's already planned for you, you just fall in with the plan, fall in with your plan. Routine means you have a structure to your day and you will feel a sense of accomplishment, which is a really positive thing to feel. Yeah, I think you know, that that's a really important point, that sense of accomplishment. And, you know, leaving it and not getting into work now, um, as well as not accomplishing much this term, will also mean there's going to be some panic coming up later. You're kind of delaying that panic. And it may be that over Christmas you end up having to do some work that you don't really want to have to do over Christmas. So really worth planning about and thinking about that now. As I said before, you may have a team that you're work, doing work with. And if you don't develop a routine and get that work done, then you're not just letting yourself down, you're letting other people down too. And you might have joined, you know, whole load of societies, sports and other interested, you know, um, topics that you're interested in. And it really pays to make those commitments and activities happen and get involved because getting involved then creates you know, a sense of, sense of achievement, social connection, lots of really good benefits there. In our Student Voices series, which is episode 11 to 15, I think three of the students emphasised the really positive mental health benefits of routine and getting that established fairly early on. And also if you've got a routine, then you're more likely to get to bed at a reasonable time, sometimes, okay, not all the time, but sometimes, eat well, and build in some rest and recovery, which is really important to your mental health and you know the ability to focus and work and study well. So lots of good reasons for developing a routine. It is so important, isn't it? So let's summarise on our tips today. So tip one was challenges and stretches are normal. Try to embrace them and become anti-fragile. Tip two, ask for help and embrace academic humility. Tip three, try and banish procrastination, perfectionism and fear of failure. Tip four, adjust to this new learning environment. And tip five, establish some kind of routine is that's going to help you in so many ways. So that brings us to the end of this series. We started eight weeks ago talking about prepping for that move to university and here you are eight, nine weeks in. We really hope that things are going well for you and that you're feeling more settled and that you're enjoying life with new friends and in your new environment. Undoubtedly, there will be highs and lows. And when you find yourself worrying and doubting your ability, remember you can always come back here and re-listen to this episode or search the other 42 episodes available for inspiration and support across a wide range of issues and challenges. Thank you so much for listening so far. Please stay tuned, share with friends and leave us a review. 
And also remember to come and follow us on Instagram, Successful Student Transitions. So we wish you a great week. Until next time, bye-bye for now. And now for the legal bits. The information contained in this podcast is for information purposes only. The content is not intended to act as a substitute for professional advice. Please do not delay in seeking professional help for any medical or mental health condition. Use of the information on this podcast and associated materials is at the user's own risk.